0: go some stories can tell It's the Final Word Cricket Podcast with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon back for another week. Our 12th season, our eighth episode. It's been another busy week around the cricketing world. We have an interview coming up later with the authors of the new book Crickonomics, The Anatomy of Modern Cricket with Stefan Siminski and Tim Wigmore, who uh, Final Word listeners will know well. It's the book that I always expected Tim would end up writing and he's uh, combined with Stefan, who was the, uh, the author of Sockonomics that was everywhere a few years ago. So it's a, a perfect marriage of sorts as authors and they've uh, produced a wonderful book and I'm looking forward to talking about it later.
1: Well, that's what people want. They want Tim Wigmore, not Tim Wig less. Um they uh, I wonder how much time goes into coming up with the title of that one because, you know, the obviously it was a stylistic choice to go for sockonomics rather than Football nomics because it, you know, it just, it just sounds a bit more like economics, right? But then they're like, mm. How do we do it with cricket? We can't do it if we use the whole word, we've got to chop off the last uh vowel, the last consonant rather, and, and 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 make it roll through to make it crickonomics.
0: It's funny you ask that. I was thinking the same thing earlier today how they were going to implement the K or otherwise. They have gone with crick with a mm. K. Before going into the onomics, I I pondered how many meetings must they have with the publisher and with each other to decide they would keep the Kate rather than leaving it out. I reckon that might have been one of the the decisions that took the longest to make. We'll see. ah. I might ask them about it later on. (laughs)
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it it would have been because so many others have forsaken the K. You know, no K for Crick Info, no K for Crick Buzz, exactly. No K for Crick Doze, the uh, NFT um, <laughs> of the ICC. Um, the K is, is 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 entirely superfluous. I mean, really, we should just get a bit more phonetic, as they do. Like one of the nice things about learning Spanish is that all of the the letters um, just have one way of being pronounced, and that's it. Once you know what it is, it will always like it's always written phonetically. You always know how to. Pronounce a word, even if you've never seen it before. Leaving in Malaysia, same thing. You know, how do you spell? Like they're like, get rid of X. We don't need X. Uh, get rid of. All right, S is a soft sound. K is a hard sound. You don't need C to be like this weird halfway in between <laughs> thing, but you use C to do a CH thing instead. So that's all clear. How do you spell taxi? T E K S I. Perfect. Everybody knows what's going on. Yeah. Right. Just, yeah, too many letters, too many pronunciations in English.
0: Say what you see. Also today we'll be talking about the Commonwealth Games that are coming up in a few months where cricket's in there for the second time, women's cricket for the first time. There's the Aussie schedule that's not out, but there's a bit around that. Some assistant coaches have been appointed that are kind of interesting, there's some serious injuries in the England fast. <laughs> kind bowlers. of interesting
1: is the best thing you can say about assistant coach.
0: Yeah, you know, I thought it was <laughs> worth putting it on the rundown, but I'm not going to overplay mm. it. I'm not going to say it's the most interesting thing we're going to talk about no. today, but it's noteworthy on the way through. There are a number of stress fractures uh, for a number of bowlers, and, and we'll talk about them in a little bit of depth. There's a, another round of county cricket to get through the last before the blast break, and there is a test series taking place in Bangladesh between the Tigers, and Sri Lanka. Their nerd pledge. the mm-hmm. interview. That's our show. Uh, we talked before about the. Superfluous K in criconomics. Well, surplus to requirements. Also, are a number of members of Parliament who are no longer there after Saturday. We we kind of started talking <laughs> oh, about smooth it. segue. I oh, know, right? It's in the intro. <laughs> We've got to get to it. Uh, we we, uh, we sort of nearly went down this path on on uh, on story time last week, which was a lot of fun, by the way. If you haven't tapped in, and you can hear Jeff and me uh, sing the nanny theme song uh, in some uh, well in its entirety. Uh, we sort of worked it out line <laughs> by line. That was the high watermark. Spoiler alert But yeah, we we started kind of wading into politics Then we pulled out Then we edited what we said We thought, no, we shouldn't get too political uh, When it'll be probably election day when it's going out But um, yeah, I did have that odd experience, Jeff, Of not being involved in the campaign this time As I normally Mm -hmm. would be if I were in Australia And then on top of that Instead of being with other, other political types, political mates I was at Lord's commentating on Middlesex's game So I had sort of the ABC open, which is the only broadcast that isn't geo-blocked in the UK on election night, so that was going on on one screen, and the and the game we were commentating on the other out there at Lords, and it was a it was a tricky morning balancing my interests, mm. but I think I did it. A- Halfway, okay, job with it. <laughs> it was probably good that it was wasn't a close result. That we knew who was going to form the new government within about ninety minutes of polls closing or, or thereabouts. But yeah, big weekend.
1: Well, it, it's uh, it's something that we have to talk about at this stage because you know when, from my perspective, when you host a show with someone who's a former prime ministerial staffer, then you probably need to talk about the election that just happened. <laughs> um, <laughs> which which is yeah, it's. It, it is interesting because I don't, I don't have your uh, sort of team loyalty part in that. I don't mm. really f- follow any political party, but I just use the nexus of: Are you a dick? Like, like, are you trying to make people's lives better, or are you trying to make life better for a small number of people who you deem are worthy? Because you know, um, misfortune is apparently a moral failure. Uh, like, are you are you doing good things to help people? Cool. Whatever, whatever colour you're wearing, whatever you call yourself, that's fine. Are you a fuckhead? Out you go. And um, you know, and so I think it's it's it, it feels good that a bunch of fuckheads got sent out the door. Yeah. We're like, oh, you look like a bunch of fuckheads. Off your shoot. Off your shoot. Uh, haven't done anything. Haven't helped anyone. Not actually dealing with the problems that need dealing with. Whoever's going to deal with them, hopefully some people will, in whatever kind of conglomerate they can put together. But that's the bit that made me happy.
0: Yeah, I was lucky as a younger fella when I was 23 to work on the Kevin 07 uh, campaign in campaign headquarters. So It was a very exciting place to be, 11 and a half years out of office. I mean, it was an exhilarating six weeks uh, and kind of defined what I'd go on to do for the rest of the decade, really. Uh, But I remember on election night when it was confirmed there'd be a change of government and the Prime Minister or the outgoing Prime Minister, John Howard, spoke, there was a sense of like respect, like even though you may not Mm. respect the everything that he did in office far from it but there was a sense that a guy who's done the job for that long and done it in, in such a diligent way even if you didn't like him deserved our respect at that particular juncture you know you didn't sort of mm-hmm. want to yell at the screen or anything like that i absolutely mm-hmm. didn't sense that on saturday night like uh, mm-hmm. you know uh, the, the, pri- the outgoing prime minister this time doesn't command our respect he's a bad dude He's a fundamentally bad dude and he's surrounded himself with a number of other very bad people and they have been punted spectacularly. This is a, a realignment in Australian politics like we haven't seen since the split, um, the DLP yeah. split in in the mid-50s in 1952, I think, as far as the way the, the Liberal Party have um, divided down. Similar lines to what you're referring to, I reckon, Jeff. and that's not to say if you're a Liberal voter you're a scumbag. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I never would. But a lot of Liberal voters have made their minds up that the government didn't deserve their support and I think that's where it's Mm -hmm. fascinating and yeah it's just a a wonderful thing to know that the the group of people going in there now many of whom are my friends and I would say this because I wish them all the best and I hope it goes well it's going to be hard it's going to be Mm -hmm. a very very difficult time Mm -hmm. to be in government in Australia at the back of the pandemic uh, with all the different economic challenges some are Um, Some are domestic, some are international, but the confluence of factors is going to make that job extremely difficult to run the show over the next three years, but they're doing so with some of the worst people in Australia no longer there, and that's only going to make that process more straightforward than it would be, um, even if Peter Dutton ends up leader of the opposition, which I expect he will.
1: Well, I, I, I sense it'll be it'll be a war footing from the Murdoch lot immediately. You know, suddenly we'll be hearing about um, national debt and things that we haven't heard I'm about sure. for many yes. years. It'll become very important <laughs> again all of a sudden. Um, deficit disaster. Uh, so, you know, th- they will be going in boots at all over the next three years and, uh, and, and trying to be as unhelpful as possible. But and I think I think, that, I think, that, I think that's a good that
0: thing. Just to jump in on on the on the Murdoch media, I think that's actually a good thing. We've seen in various daily elections, the harder the Murdoch press go, and that's not everybody who works for Murdoch by the way, it's the decision makers at uh, at Holt Street and, and other places where they are directed to do as they do, where the harder they have gone the better it's worked out for us. I, I say go your hardest because they look less and less credible, they look more and more like the propaganda arm of the LNP and most sound-minded Australians realise that. They know that what they're reading on the front page of the Telegraph and the front page of the Herald Sun is a construct that has little to do with reality and more to do with uh, the Mm. interest of an old bloke that lives in New York. So I don't mind that. I, I say go for gold, have a crack, because I reckon Australia have moved on from that bullshit.
1: And when you say an old bloke, you mean a, a sort of eternal undead spirit that somehow remains tethered yeah. to this physical plane in, in some sort of semblance of a shell. Um yeah, it's it's God it's been a peculiar time. But look, be be wary of thinking the spell is broken. I I heard people say that in two thousand and seven, I, <laughs> I heard them say it in two thousand and ten and you know. I um,
0: think the difference <laughs> was I think the difference was in two thousand and seven. Labor won with, I think from memory, all barred two news court papers endorsing the opposition. This time, not a single news court paper from coast to coast was willing to put their endorsement in the column mm-hmm. of the Labor Party, that's ridiculous. That shows out, how out of step they are with where the voters were. I mean, look at look at the way the swings worked in in the capital cities, for example. These are mm-hmm. nominally the newspapers for these capital cities. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I reckon you might be right about the spell not being broken. But look at Victoria. I mean, you you know the, the way in which the, the Murdoch press went for the government and the opposition fourteen eighteen increased majority in 18 and I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case again in November this year so mm. yeah. have a crack guys see how you end up
1: well look a, a couple of things I found I have been finding particularly amusing one one is the idea that in all of the liberal heartland seats you know they found out that people can like franking credits and the environment at the same time um, and, and that they will vote accordingly and 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 that the response to that has been like well obviously we were not right-wing enough like oh, the yeah. crazies didn't get any votes like the one nation clive palmer kind yep. of nut jobs got a, a pretty insignificant
0: proportion Five hundred thousand vote. votes each across mm-hmm. the country.
1: Yep. And uh, and even in, you know, a lot of the seats on first preference would have been Libs slightly ahead of Labor, but then there were massive green votes that ensured comfortable Labor wins and, and they were behind the big swings. If you look at that and be like, should have been more right wing, you know, I think we should have beaten up more trans kids. I think that really would have, you know, we didn't go hard enough. Like that is objectively hilarious that that's the analysis coming out of the election. And the other bit was watching the ABC coverage and, um, you know, Lee Sales and Annabelle Crabbe going, oh, Tanya Plibersek, wow, uh, you must be really disappointed with this result that, like, Labor's lost 1% of the vote nationally or whatever it is. There's been a swing against you. And uh, Plibersek's like, uh, we're going to form government. So, not not very disappointed uh, because believe it or not, people aren't that stupid. If they vote for independence or they vote for greens, like in the vast majority of cases, that's not going to get you a lower house MP, but you know who you're electing with your preferences. Like that's how the system works. People aren't that stupid to be like, I put one in this box. And then after that, I don't have any opinion about two and on. They know how the system works. Like people voted for a change of government.
0: Yeah, it's that great sort of cliche at the end of every campaign. It's the lowest Labor primary vote on record. You hear it every election because voting patterns have changed. When John Howard became Prime Minister, he said that one in 10 voters weren't aligned to a party. That's probably like Mm -hmm. four in 10 now. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. Like the the fact that there are more voters who are making their minds up later. Like we have a compulsory voting system. Their their votes are getting counted. Preferential voting helps with that, as you point out. Mm -hmm. And... Thirdly, as Barry Cassidy noted on social media, all of this hyperventilation around Labor's primary vote this time, in, what, we up to now? A dozen independents being elected, of which 10 are Teals. Mm-hmm. Labor voters were voting strategically. Of course, if I lived in, even as a party member, I might lose my membership over this because you're meant to vote Labor all the time, but uh, if I was living in Kuyong, I would have voted mm-hmm. for the Teal candidate first to make sure that they were likely to come second on their primary vote. You don't want to mm-hmm. you don't want to mess with that. You don't want to mess with the electoral gods. The, the best yep. chance of getting rid of the, the incumbent was to vote strategically. So, of course, that means that mm-hmm. Labor shed votes in 10 seats. And you add all of those up, it's impossible to know for sure. I've seen a couple of mm-hmm. attempts to do so. But, yeah, it's not going to be the same primary vote that Labor was elected with in, in 2007. But nor was it when Abbott won in 2013, the same primary vote the Liberal Party had in 1996. Both major parties are, are changing... Uh, their their composition of votes and and seats when they eventually form government. So, yeah, I, I, I thought that was just ridiculous analysis.
1: Yeah, with 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 the added um, detail that in 2014, when Abbott got elected, they voted in a creepy carnivorous lizard to that top job, who could actually shift shape. Uh, you know, there are there are pros and cons for each political decision.
0: <laughs> right, Jeff. Uh, let's move on to the cricket, shall we? Uh, I feel like we've we've uh, satisfied uh, urged to talk a little bit of politics off the top. Some people might have got angry about that, but it is our prerogative. For it is our podcast. Uh, there is going to be cricket in the Commonwealth Games for just the second time in August, Jeff. You and I will be at that at Edgbaston. And Australia have named their squad... Shelly Nitschke, I nearly said Dr Shelley Nitschke, is going to be the Australian coach in an acting capacity in Matthew Mott's mm-hmm. absence, having moved to the England men's team last week. And the squad uh, so looks... Can
1: we, just, um, can we just double back on that? So presumably that means that uh, the doc, as we know her, will be appointed as the full-time coach in about 14 months' time after some sort of elaborate farce, after interviewing 93 candidates, after running a reality TV show where <laughs> Michael Voss puts <laughs> Them through their paces, potential hosts for the potential coaches for the Australian women's cricket team after they, everybody gets voted off and dumped on an island, then they'll be like, Oh, we've got an announcement. Shelly Nitschke will be the new coach for the Australian women's cricket team.
0: Am I guessing that right? I, I think the only uh, the only other candidate might be Lottie because she's just been appointed. Uh, Charlotte mm. Edwards has been appointed the coach of the Sydney Sixers. Given she's in Australia for that, I suppose that might provide uh-huh. some pause for thought. But Shelly Nitschke's been the, uh, the assistant coach for. For years so if they want continuity they will get it mm-hmm. i expect or ben sawyer
1: who's the other assistant coach and has done good work yep. with the sixes and most notably for us was responsible for jody hicks getting a contract for several years running <laughs> the big hicks backer so if ben sawyer gets to the top job do we dare to dream hicks for australia
0: yeah yeah and the squad they've named for the com games is exactly as you'd expect lanning haynes brown carey gardner harris grace harris I didn't know she was in that. I'm glad to see she's there. Healy, Jonathan, King, McGrath, Mooney, Perry, Shoot, Sutherland, and Amanda, Jade Wellington from South Australia. So a squad of 15, Grace Harris in the fair break the other week, took a hat trick and made a couple of useful contributions with the bat. Mm -hmm. She, um, she was quite funny uh, talking about the World Cup and, even when she was out in New Zealand, she, she uh, made some quip that she got a gig because she's a good tourist. So they just wanted her around the squad because she was <laughs> just a good person to have there. Well, she's a lot more than that. She's a fabulous cricketer, Grace Harris. So I hope she um, gets a chance to play uh, in the com Games. She returned to the Aussie team during the women's ashes for the two T20s at Adelaide that were washed out. And then didn't play in the one dayers So she's, you know, mm. she's played in two international games technically. Yeah. But the last time she batted for Australia, Jeff would be, I reckon, 2016 or something like that. So um, hopefully they can, they can get her in the squad at some point, or get her in the eleven, I should say, at some point at Birmingham.
1: I think they've also missed a trick here, which is that I don't see Steve War's name anywhere around this <laughs> squad. Commonwealth Games silver medalist Steve War. Now I know that the Australian team—they will be going to Birmingham with dreams of silver. They will be hoping to replicate what the Australian men's team did in the 90s. They will be hoping to bring home a silver of their own. You know, they'll be they'll be seeing Edgebaston awash in tones of silver, and. And who better to guide you on that journey than someone who's been there, someone who's done it, someone who knows about the pressures of playing in a gold medal game and not winning it than Stephen Roger Waugh. I mean, surely, surely, it's not too late. I'm saying Cricket Australia, it's the end of May. They don't play till, what, the end of July. Give him a call. He's probably snapping some photos somewhere at at an orphanage or an elephant park or what have you. Get him involved. They had him in, in England for the Ashes in 19... Get him in for the Com games.
0: Yeah, I hear you. Brad Young can come back as well as the the spinner who yes. who, who was the frontliner in that World Cup campaign. The, the Matt Mott appointment's been. Very well received around the place, except for one place. I saw some commentary saying that um, that because Meg Lanning's a strong captain, it neutralised the influence that Matthew Mott had on the dressing room, which was a bit curious. Mm. Yeah, I think it's reasonable to say that anyone that's been paying close attention realises that they formed an incredibly dynamic partnership. Mott was instrumental in resurrecting Australia's fortunes after the 2017 World Cup in England, Jeff. Uh, and mm-hmm. the best dressing rooms often have... A couple of strong people there it's not about one person defining what goes down it's about having a a, a number of options there and and, and Matthew Mott played his role Mm. perfectly Um, often as a spokesperson for the team uh, you know as you have to do as an international coach and the fact that he's now walking into a dressing room with strong leadership i.e Owen Morgan I think that's a a, a quite nice like for like in that yes Lanning has ran that operation as captain for eight years now something like that Mm -hmm. that's Probably the same length of time that Owen oh, Morgan's been in charge of the men's England One Day team as they lead up to their their World Cup defence. So I, yeah, I think that's that's quite a nice like for like. It it is in terms of how Lanning and, and Morgan match up
1: personality-wise as well. I mean, mm. I, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't think of either of of Mott or Lanning as as forceful personalities. I and mean, Lanning's Lanning's quite a um, someone with quite a bit of self doubt as a captain. Doesn't have much self doubt as a player, but you know, often gets nervous and and twitchy at, at different moments, you know, even towards the end of that Canberra test, you know, time in the job hasn't uh, made her immune to the the nerves and the pressure. But the way that those two operated was by being very calm all the time. It, yeah. was, it, was, yeah. it was keeping keeping a lid on things. It, w- it was making sure that, that pressure didn't build up. I think that was what Mott identified in 2017 was we're so good that we'll win nine games out of ten, but in the tenth game when we're put under pressure we lose our shit because we don't know how to cope with it at that point. And so that was his big thing was was to focus on um, players being able to respond under pressure. And I think that's what what you've seen over the last five years or so from that Australian team. There have been so many games where... Things haven't been going that well but somebody comes in ice cold in the way that Beth Mooney does or Talia McGrath does uh, and, you know, someone who's, who's not one of the, the big couple of names from a few years ago uh, comes in and and plays the, the crucial hand at, at the crucial time and, you know, and Mott's always been about just keeping things level, keeping things calm accepting that we're better than most other teams but we've also got to be better in the
0: moments when we're challenged. Yeah, I think that's a great summation of of the Mott era, uh, if you like, and yeah, he leaves that dressing room uh, far better than when he arrived and in turn they'll they'll continue to be able to do as they do. I, I don't think him leaving as Australian coach provides any meaningful threat Um, And nor do I think his absence, if they do go on to win the Commonwealth Games gold medal or or they do go on to win the next World Cup, which they probably will, uh, suggests that he wasn't that important either. There's a, as I say, there's a, the dressing rooms have lots of different personalities and when they're functioning at their best, as clearly this dressing room is, um, you have a a captain and a coach that a lot of people respect and will work hard for. And and, I mean, Jeff, we've interviewed pretty much every Australian women's player at some point or another, and they clearly have enormous amounts of respect for both Lanning and Mm -hmm. Mott. That's why they were so effective.
1: And I think that what he can bring to England is like I reckon they need a bit of a refresh because if you look at that England team particularly with the batting a lot of the same players are there as the ones who were there in 2019 it's a few years later uh, most of them are into their 30s now they're not ancient players but they're players who've been at this for a very long time and and, and so then it's like how do you put the juice into them how do you yeah how do you make sure that that they've stayed fresh, um, and he also is going to have to manage some transition stuff in the way that he did in 2017 yep, with yep. the Australian women's team. You look at the way they moved on from players like Elise Villani, Nicole Bolton, Alex Blackwell and so on, um, the way that he was pretty ruthless, you know, even in, in the last few months, even with really established players, leaving out Megan Shoot for certain games, Elise Perry for certain games, that kind of thing, making those calls that other coaches for other countries wouldn't do. If they had a player with that record, they would just play every single game kind of in the way that England pick teams, you know, where there's a a natural conservatism about about showing some boldness and, and backing the next generation. So that's what he's going to have to do with the England men's team. They've got no fast bowlers. Archer keeps getting injured. Wood keeps getting injured. And they've got this, you know, not, not ancient but ageing, batting list who are still good enough to do some damage in a year's time at the 50 over World Cup but um, you've got to have them in the right headspace and the right sort of Physical condition and all the rest to do it, which isn't necessarily going to happen with the amount of cricket that England play.
0: Yeah, and he'll command a lot of respect as well. I think, Mott, given his experience both in Australia and England, men's cricket, women's cricket, he's kind of done it all. So, uh, yeah, I think the timing with the England dressing room good. I think your point about a different voice uh, just before a couple of World Cups, and, and you know, there's the T Twenty World Cup. Of course, that's important, but the. The real quiz for the England white ball team is, is retaining the fifty over World Cup next year. If they can do that, it would be an extraordinary achievement. So yeah, looking forward to seeing how that plays out over the next eighteen months or so. Now, sticking with Australia, the schedule feels like it's coming out soon. We've seen a couple of, you know, briefed yarns in the last mm-hmm. fortnight or so. It is probably more intense than we thought, which is saying something. New Zealand and Zimbabwe are gonna come out and play white ball cricket against Australia in Australia, kind of at the end of winter in the lead up or maybe spring start of spring, end of winter in the lead up to the 20-over World Cup, which starts in October. So effectively in that window that Australia would have played India in test cricket over in India until that was moved until March next year. Speaking of next year, they go from a home summer, then they play – or inside the home summer, sorry, they they have the World Cup, then England play – One day is, which will be a bit odd, I reckon, but it's Mm -hmm. for World Cup Super League points, and there you go. They'll have test cricket, five tests, not six, which is a bit disappointing that they're not going to have the Windies out for a third, but I suppose it's that crunch, isn't it, much as it was when Australia hosted the Men's World Cup in in 2015 and they were only able to host four test matches that previous summer. Mm-hmm. There's that extra strain on the, on the schedule. They're going to go to South Africa after the Ashes next year to make up for the test tour that didn't happen last year. And in a way, that kind of works. They're going to play five one-day internationals before the 50-over World Cup in October twenty three. So that's how they're going to mm-hmm. make it up to cricket South Africa for that unfortunate withdrawal last year. So no tests.
1: So so those test matches vanish.
0: No, those test matches vanish until the next cycle. And the fact that they're playing test cricket in Australia means they they satisfy their WTC commitment for this cycle. Mm-hmm. And uh, I suppose yeah, we'll have to wait a couple more years until Australia are back there for test cricket, right? And they they also that also kind of means you know maybe. Steve
1: Smith, David Warner never play another yeah. Test series in South Africa. Good point. You know, which which would have been a big thing, would have been a significant thing for them to go back and, and have some other chapter, you know, some something else to the legacy than the last time they left.
0: The other interesting thing that's being floated at the moment, I think Dan Bredig had this story uh, in The Age last week, is that the one-day internationals in the main bit of the summer, so after the Test cricket's finished, yeah. normally they'd be day-nighters and they wouldn't be played on the same nights as Big Bash games? Well, they're going to reconfigure it. So the one-dayers are day games and the Big Bash games are at night, which do relegate the one-dayers. I mean, the glory days, Jeff, of uh, of, of one-day internationals mid-summer. Um, the day-nighters were, were the peak of the summer alongside the Melbourne Test match, perhaps, and there they're going to be taking a, a back seat once again. And the idea floated here is that CA are making representations to other cricket boards to ask them not to schedule international cricket during the Big Bash. In that few weeks in January when they want the Big Bash to dominate, they don't want to see test cricket played presumably in South Africa, New Zealand, maybe Sri Lanka sometimes host tests in in January. I found that kind of comical. I mean, as if South Africa, who have their own scheduling problems as it is, are going to acquiesce to CA because they want to have more time for the Big Bash. That's just surely not going to happen.
1: I mean, it's a bizarre proposition. So, for for what I mean, are they are they hoping to sign all the South African players to come and play? In well, the big well the, I, think, I think I think
0: yes. I think yeah. The short answer is yes. They, they have an image problem with the international players they're signing right now. I know the comp right. goes forever, and that's their main issue structurally. But isn't there yep. a sense now, Jeff? No, I don't watch it, so I can't speak too deeply about it. But they're not getting the same caliber of international player they hmm. they once got when the comp was shorter. Would that be reasonable?
1: Well, I mean, I don't even know that they got that many players of a great caliber. Even when it was shorter, there right. there have been more marquee names playing in the Bangladesh Premier League than in the Big Bash, and and I think CA know that. And yeah, partly it's duration and sort of intensity of cash, and partly it's timing. And there have always been other tours because there are you know other. Southern Hemisphere countries that, that need teams to tour and so on. But, yeah, the, the thing of prioritising it ahead of, you know, like putting the one-day-as-as-day games, it's like, why would you want to watch the national team when you can watch Peter Hatzoglu bowling to Evan Lewis, you know, our star import? And you're like, yeah, they're all good cricketers, but, but it, it doesn't have the the zhuzh that it had when they were like, let's sign AB to Villiers, you know, let's,
2: yeah, yeah.
1: let's get Dale Stane. But, of course, South Africa also want to start their own league their own Mm. T20 league and Neil Manthorpe was writing about this during the week which potentially is going to mean that a bunch of players either can't play in the third test against Australia because they'll be needed in South Africa, or also that they'll, at the other end of January, they'll miss out on the one day as against England, which South Africa need to win so they can try to qualify for the next World Cup. But they're also desperately short of money, and, and they've got this private equity T20 league with private investors owning the teams. And as Neil's pointing out, why would a private team owner be willing to accept the best players being somewhere else rather than saying, I've just put a bunch of money into your sport, I want every South African
0: national player to be available. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And again, it just reinforces the squeeze. It's always there. the The calendar is getting mm. worse and worse and worse. And, and and we'll talk a bit about this. I suspect later with with Tim and Stefan about scheduling because they've they've looked at this in in the New Zealand context and where they've not been greedy, New Zealand. They've been willing to accept the realities of the situation and they've been better for it. Where. Other countries just desperately want a piece of this pie and not unreasonably that they want to have a domestic Mm T20 comp that can succeed, but this must be South Africa's third crack at it. And if that does jeopardize what they're doing as a national team, I I doubt it'll work. So yes, let's get Manners back on the show. He's going to be in England actually in about a month's time working with me. So why don't we collar him then and do it in person? Sure. Sure. Sounds good uh, Australia have named A couple of assistant coaches For the men's team as well uh, Which came out Just before we started recording Daniel Vittori Which was expected Uh, And Andre Borovic, who was with the team in Pakistan and he's going to be uh, with the Australians in in Sri Lanka too. He uh, comes from a Premier Cricket background in Victoria, Institute of Sport, Renegades, education background too. So I think they like Mm -hmm. that holistic approach that he has. I don't know much about him, to be honest, uh, but it takes some doing to get appointed as one of two assistant coaches. It's a pretty, pretty plum gig, so they must like him.
1: Well, let me let me tell you, I've been on the Borovic train for a while. Big Boz energy because when I went down to give that talk to the uh, event at Hampton Cricket Club, it yep. was it was Borovic adjacent. So they had Andre Borovic lined up as their guest speaker. He was then called up uh, to be an emergency coach for the Australian team. <laughs> <laughs> because Justin Langer had just resigned and so they needed a speaker and that's when I came in. So that's when I, I started getting the vibes, the Borovich vibes. I was like, tell me more. I okay. want to know more about Andre Borovich." And, yeah, he's very, very well regarded at that kind of prem cricket level and had been doing some stuff with the Renegades, I think, as well. Cool. Um, wicket-keeping specialty too, if I remember rightly. That could be wrong, but I'm just going off the top of my head here but um yeah he's a he's a properly accredited and educated kind of coach rather than you know someone who used to play for australia who whose phone number you have in the mold of greg Blewett, batting coach so uh, i think i think it's a better choice and then vittori means they're really doubling down with andrew mcdonald and daniel vittori on having like tall gangly dudes with really deep voices and beards (laughs) so they would be like hey guys Oh, yeah, just uh, thought I'd uh,
2: have a few observations about the game today. Uh, we probably should have tried to make a few more runs.
1: You know, and, and, and that's very comforting. People like that, Like, you know when a cat purrs, the reason it purrs partly is the vibration helps it its bones repair themselves. Like, it actually helps bones knit, the, the, that slight vibration. That's what Andrew McDonald's voice does, and that's what Daniel Vittori's voice does. It, it, it will heal injuries faster.
0: I thought you were about to break into an Andrew Wu there, another man with a, a deep, reassuring voice. <laughs> um, we're bouncing around a bit here today, but bear with us. Uh, I mentioned we, we touch on uh, the various England injuries. Since we last recorded, Jofra Archer has been ruled out for the season. Matt Fisher's been ruled out for the season. Saki Bamood was ruled out before we recorded last week, but that's three additional stress mm-hmm. fractures which are, have ended three more seasons. There's a theory doing the rounds, and the ECB's own medical staff have pushed us along a bit, three which is a little bit one, un- unusual. <laughs> uh that uh, that this is to do with covid lockdowns and bone density i haven't got the stats in front of me but in effect that if okay. you ask a professional athlete to sit still for you know two months three months i think it was four mm-hmm. months initially here and not do mm-hmm. what they normally would do of course they weren't able to net as such when we we're in lockdown here through 2020 that yep. you, you lose quite a significant chunk of your bone density and when, yeah. when you're at that elite level that is it's not about you know running around the block it's about people who rely on pushing their body to the extreme as as fast bowlers do and that what we're seeing here now is a couple of years later when they've been using their back to bowl again that they've not been able to do it with quite the same strength and thus um, they're they're suffering these injuries so I mean I can't for a moment profess to know much about this but it has some degree of logical narrative to it.
1: Yeah I mean a lot of things do though when you can point out Causative things, yep. uh, yeah. Correlative things that might be causative. Yep. We are not doctors. Maybe we should call Doctor Monique Ryan um, and say, <laughs> "Look, you know, you seem to know about things. Tell us about bone density. Um, <laughs> tell us about the likelihood of that becoming a problem over a couple of years of watching Netflix and smashing your fish tank accidentally." Um, yeah, I don't know, but it, it's a, it's a horrible thing. I, I keep thinking, you know, I, I, I remember back to Lords at twenty nineteen. the the archer smith day and when we were recording and you know we were saying this is remember you saying like this is this is someone who could be shaping fast bowling for the next 10 years because of like how exciting it was the way he bowled that day and it's just every every injury every weight every setback it just oh i don't know it's it's just it just feels like 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 someone running along with a bag of gold doubloons with a hole in the bottom and, like, the treasure is slowly trickling away um, with each week and each month that goes by.
0: Yeah, look, he, he's 27, so he still, at least theoretically, has his best fast bowling ahead of him if you work on the, th- on the basis that fast bowlers are at their absolute best from about 29 to 32. But... Another year out of the game, it's going to be tough for him. Uh, I suppose he could end up being a white ball only type like Tamal Mills when he had all of those back problems. I I hope it doesn't play out that way because I still subscribe to what I said then in 2019 that that Archer at his best is the most – a transformative cricketer of his generation or, oh, could, yes. or could be. would have been almost yeah, that, at this point. Well, yeah, could, might have been, yeah. But that 2019, everything he seemingly touched turned to gold and let's yeah. hope he comes back. I think that was the prevailing uh, feeling when that news came through. People were just like, the, the wind came out of your sails. I was at Lord's doing the first day of that Um Middlesex-Durham game and yeah, everybody you spoke to is like, oh, did you hear the Joffrey news? Oh, like it's not about even mm. seeing England do well. No one's viewing it through a parochial lens. No one expected no. him to play international cricket this year anyway. It's just like that that visceral experience of watching Archer and the, we'll be denied that at least, until, uh, at least until next year, it would seem. And, and what it has done with all the other fast bowlers out of contention, so Ollie Robinson isn't yet... Ready to roll as a test player again. We saw him bowling off spin last week, you know. I think my theory is <laughs> that Ollie Robinson might end up in shades. Do you have I, the I, shade? I believe he did. I've got a theory that okay. Ollie Robinson's gonna become an outstanding off spinner when he's older. a la Tony Gregg. Anyway, for another day. Chris Wokes isn't fit to play at the moment. So and you add obviously Mark Wood, who I think will play some short-form cricket in July or August on his comeback. He might play test cricket against South Africa, but that's a a best-case scenario. Ollie Stone's still missing from the injury he picked up last year to his back. So with all of these players missing, it's given the opportunity to like Matty Potts from Durham, who if you're drawing up a depth chart 12 months ago on all of the fast bowlers who might play for Mm -hmm. England, he might have been like the 24th bowler picked. And that's no reflection on Potts. It's just that... He just wasn't anywhere near the conversation and he's so in the frame now that they rested him, Durham, last week at Lord's, knowing that he's probably going to make his test to Boo mm. in nine days from now at Lord's alongside Broaden and Anderson. What an extraordinary story.
1: Well, if there were a reflection on pots, then they wouldn't be calling the kettle black any longer. Um, but <laughs> he's—I I, I, kind of like the Matthew Potts story because he's just someone I'd almost never heard of. I was like, yeah. your name's vaguely familiar." You know, in the in the in the world of county cricket that you pay closer attention to than I do, and I do my best. It's not like I don't try, but there are. 4,000 players across all of the teams. Like, exactly. How are you supposed to supposed to know them all? Um, but, you know, it, 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 saw a bit of vision. He seemed to bowl pretty nicely, but yeah the idea as you say a few months ago that he would have been rolling up to complete the trio uh, would have been considered fanciful. Yeah he's a good cricketer
0: um, we've seen enough of that this year. While we're talking county cricket let's skip through uh, that last group of four-day games that were played before the blast break they're not back. Yeah playing. it's the last it's the
1: last round it's last drinks they're they're playing uh, they're playing Kaysan <laughs> and then they're going to put the lights up for county cricket and everyone has to go off and go home and play T20 for a few Yeah they're going
0: to play don't look don't look back in anger if it were a nightclub here last song of oh, the yeah. night. It's a Division 1, Surrey, Hampshire, Yorkshire, Lanks are the top four heading into the break for Yorkshire. Um, They played Warwickshire at Headingley. Adam Lythe made 100. Harry Brook made 82 after being brought into the test squad. But other than that, it was a fairly uh, pedestrian draw. Just one win for Warwickshire after winning the comp last year. Hampshire Mm. defeated Somerset in three days. They bowled them out for 211 and 69. Somerset's batting's been dross this year with a couple of exceptions. Uh, Although, if you're up against Keith Barker Kyle Abbott Muhammad Abbas I mean good luck that is just too good. That, you know, they should not be allowed to play together, those three. They are just too good. Uh, They're second in Division One. I, I think they'll end up winning a comp. Uh, it'll be huge when they um, when they play Surrey for a second time. Uh, at Once wasn't Keith Rodin, Barker was the one
1: doing the, the ridiculous stuff in that game last year, wasn't he? And that maybe it was the last game of the season he, or he, thereabouts. Uh, he, he he was... he,
0: the last time we might have talked about Keith Barker was when he hit eight sixes into the mound stand against Middlesex to, to change a game um, that was going in a different direction a couple of years ago. Wasn't he
1: taking a week? on the on the it was it was, it was the last it was in Hampshire were,
0: oh know, yes yes oh, he took title, a seven to,
1: title contention yeah yes yeah, seven took, he took a seven right. for
0: at the yeah, I mean, he's got more than 400 first-class wickets and more than hmm. four 1st thousand first-class runs they're probably both closer to, to having fives in front of them now so he's a he's a super cricketer nearly played Premier League um, football as a striker so he's a capable all-round athlete yep. uh, at Wontage Road. Uh, ben Compton uh, made another century and then 68 in the second dig. He's overtaken all of them. He overtook Shah Massoud, Chiteshwa Pajara, uh, Dixon from Durham, who was out injured with a hamstring problem this week. He ended up the closest to 1,000. I think Compton got to about 8.50, the sad postscript with Shah I'll, I'll come to when we reach the, the second division. But yes, for Kent he got them up to 519 for nine. There was a, a high scoring draw in that match against Northants. Uh, a couple of timely half centuries for Zach Crawley who it was fair to say that county fans weren't thrilled that Crawley got picked for the test team having made mm. not a run for six weeks and you know, players like Sam Robson missed out but yes they're, they're playing the long game with Crawley I suppose. Um, over at Old Trafford Essex made 391 in the first innings and Dan Lawrence uh, made 120 after being uh, left out of that, that first test squad up against Jimmy Anderson which can only help in terms of his reputation. Anderson took one for 59 from 21. Then Lakes were bowled out twice in a hurry for 103 and then 232 following on a combination of Cook, Porter and Harmer. And Essex got the job done by an innings and 56 runs. And very quickly in Division 2, the game I was doing at Lords, Durham made 350. Middlesex replied with 422. And then Toby Rowan Jones completely blew the game open. I mean it was beautiful, Jeff. Toby rowland jones who has had so many injuries. You know, we, we talk about back stress fractures. He would have been on that Ashes tour of 1718 if not for getting mm-hmm. one in the final game of the county season. He's had a shoulder rico, he's had a knee rico. I mean, everything, right? And he's back now. He's not bowling 85 mile an hour anymore, but. He's still a pretty good, pretty bloody good bowler. Um, he, he picked up 10 for the match, got Stokes out second ball for a duck in the second innings, which was pretty cool uh, that, that Roland Jones was able to get the test captain out in his last performance uh, before he moves to test duty and Middlesex stay top of the table. Knott's had an emphatic 10-wicket victory over Derbyshire, and this is the disappointing bit here. Sean Massoud, he was out for 18 in the first innings to Paddo, remembering that he needed about... Hundred and sixty runs, was it Jeff? Hundred and sixty yeah. odds to reach a thousand before the end of May. And then Broad in the got him. So eighteen in the first dig to Pato. Then the second innings, third ball, broad celebr appeal, given out league before wicket. It wasn't out. No. It wasn't uh. Out. Uh, I mean Shan Sean pretty much walked, so he didn't help the situation, but I watched it back a few times. That was sitting outside the line. Broad was over, celebrating with third slip before the finger even went up. So um yes. Not not a great way to end uh, that particular storyline. But, yeah, Yeah. a convincing win for Knots in that game with Hasiba Mead making 93, not out. Uh, In the second innings, I think they chased down 167 without losing a wicket. And the final game, Worcestershire. Jeff, you're one of the the counties that you always get confused about. They're having a great season. Uh, They have pumped Leicestershire in three days at New Road. Uh, They went huge in their first innings with Ali making 225, the Pakistani veteran. And then they won by an innings and 259. So Worcestershire, right up there with Notts and Middlesex uh, in in the race for promotion out of Division 2. I
1: see. Everybody wants a promotion. Uh, Well, plenty to keep you busy there. There was also a bit of test cricket going on, Bangladesh and Sri Lanka, which we missed talking about last week and kind of... I mean, honestly, it was half deliberate. Like, I didn't remind you because... It was a bat-a-thon, you know. Yeah. It just They didn't even get into the fourth innings at Chittagong. It was heartening to see Angelo Matthews make some big runs and then somewhat disheartening that he got out for 199. Not many players have done that. Um, Angelo did that, but he's at least churning out some r- runs again and then Mushfiqur Aeem and, and Tamim Iqbal making uh, centuries as well. So, you know, one for the batters and then the second test at Dhaka is underway with... Both the same and a completely different kind of approach because it is one of the most bananas scorecards I have ever seen in my cricket life. Mushfikar 175, Littendass 141, six ducks littered around them. Only one other player got to double figures. And that was a score of 15. So you've got 15, a nine, a six, and and everybody else has made noughts. It is extraordinary. So two big tons and they got 365 all together. Uh, So pretty extraordinary. They were five down for 24
0: at one point
1: before that big partnership rescued them. And so, yeah, that, that game's still underway.
0: Yeah, imagine that you're yeah, the Sri Lankan bowling lineup. You've got them 24 for 5 on the first morning uh, at the National Stadium in Dhaka, and you're still fielding a day and a half later. Galling. And Mushvika. Back-to-back hundreds for the great man, so pleased to see that for him, the former captain of Bangladesh, and, yeah, maybe they can get a result out of that and and win the series 1-0. Jeff, before we go to our interview, uh, let's do a little bit of Nerd Pledge.
1: Nerd Pledge, yes, it's the game we play on The Final Word, the game we play with the people who listen to this show, the reverse quiz. Here's how it works. They fund the show, the people who listen and choose to do this, by sending us contributions, but they're not a normal number. They're a very specific number because that number relates to cricket in some way and we have to work out what that relationship is. Our next pleasure this week is Big Ben Halliwell, who I run into all the time around uh, the towns of Carlton and Brunswick. He has sent through $4.40 in AUD. So 440 is our number in
0: some form. And he sent a clue through with it. This number occurred in the 1990s and it happened in a match that had a very odd and unique occurrence, which I have never seen or heard of before or since.
1: This sounds like very nerd plagiarism, Ben. Thank you. Look, so the first thing that came to mind was I was like, didn't Dean Headley take 4 for 40 on that tour at the end of the 90s? And I thought Mel was it to do with the win in Melbourne, and so I looked it up, and it wasn't it was in Sydney in the next test, uh, which was a match that Australia won, so it wasn't it wasn't the headley moment because I did think that in referring to a very odd and unique occurrence that could have been England winning a Test match in Australia as, <laughs> as they did in in Melbourne famously on that particular tour. but the Sydney test they didn't win, but it was still a match with a lot of pretty random weird shit that happened in it. Mark Taylor's last test match. Glenn McGrath's two hundredth wicket. Mark War's hundredth catch. Uh, Mark Taylor takes his hundred and fifty seventh catch to take the record off Alan Border for the most test catches. Raul Dravid holds it now, but that was a big deal then, in, in the first week of nineteen ninety nine. First innings you nearly get both War brothers making tons together. Steve War gets out for ninety six. Didn't make up for the silver medal. And what you could say was an odd unique occurrence Since then, not before then, but since then, was that Australia picked three spinners playing at home. I'm Mm. pretty certain that hasn't happened since. Uh, Like, you know, Uh, it happened in the
0: 30s. I think they did it one more time when Funky was around, possibly the the next year against the West Indies. I mean, it it was when Funky was bowling same up for four or five overs with the new ball and then reverting to spin later in the match.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the West Indies game was when Funky went Federation blue with the hair... Um, I think McGill oh no, McGill, McGill and Funky played and Warren didn't Warren because wasn't, Warren was almost yeah. not around that summer. Warren was injured yeah, for some reason. Yeah. He had a his finger a problem or something like yep. that. Um so so yes, Warren, McGraw, uh, so Warren McGill and Colin Miller all played together as three spinners. Um, Warren was coming back from injury, took a one for, as McGill took a five for. So that was kind of cute. as Memorable well. though,
0: st- it was memorable that Warren came back and like I'll never forget the, the sort of the hype around Warren playing that Test match because remember he, you know he was pretty banged up, and he <laughs> he gets. Butch stumped, I reckon, in the first Butcher, innings. Yeah. yeah, and the response... No, LBW, I think. LBW, So I think there might have been a stumped in the second Either way, second there was a lot... Put it this way, the ratings on television would have been astronomical when Maugham was bowling that spell. Mm-hmm. It was late in the afternoon and everyone was just willing him to be better after having had that mm-hmm. shoulder problem
1: yep so so first innings you've got the war brothers thing second innings you've got McGill taking five and Warren taking one on the comeback third innings Australia have a hundred and two run lead you've got the bit where michael slater was run out by Dean Headley, but the third umpire's view was blocked on the replay and so they didn't give it out. Even though he couldn't have been anything but out, you couldn't actually see that he was out. So he gets reprieved. Then he nearly breaks the Bannerman. Bannerman, yeah. He makes 123 out of 184, just cut and sick at the end. And as we know, that that ends up at 66.84% of the runs uh, behind Bannerman on 67.35, which we've talked about all the time is that Slater's second on the list. But I think what we haven't, Talked about is that he nearly got it. So Slater doesn't bat through, he doesn't carry his bat through the innings. He's not even last man out, he's, he's the eighth wicket to fall. So right. there's two more to follow after him. At the point that he gets out, the score is 180 that's 68.33%. Ah. He's got the Bannerman at that point. Now, Stuart McGill makes one more run at that point. McGill's batting nine in this team, by the way, like God knows how. But McGill makes one more run, he's out for six. And McGrath gets out for a duck, which cumulatively should still give Slater the record of 67.95. But in the interim, Funky Miller has made three not out and thus he (laughs) saves the Bannerman. After Slater's got out, he he pinches the record off him and makes sure that Bannerman
0: remains. uh, Probably had the bat out, so here I come to save the day. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Did it. Did it. um, They say it's the
0: only way. But they. they Sorry.
1: When you're the third spinner, you can't sing Second Solution. That's the only problem. Oh, wow. They're very good. Very good. So I I love that now in retrospect because, you know, frankly, I'm glad Michael Slater doesn't have that record and and Colin (laughs) Miller is what stood between us (laughs) and that. And if all that's not enough, in the fourth innings, England are chasing 287. They have a crack. McGill takes seven for 50. And. Both openers get stumped. As you remember, there's one for Ah, Warren, but there's one one. for McGill. So Butcher, Butcher and Stewart both get stumped by Healy, right? And I thought this could be something Ben has never seen before or since because the only way you would have seen it before is if you'd been watching The Ashes in 1882 or 1886 in which this happened uh, both in both those years, England on the receiving end from Australia via Jack Blackham and James Kelly, not the uh, Geelong Football Club halfback flanker, but the wicketkeeper. And then there was one more instance against England from Clyde Walcott in 1950. So that's you know three times in the first hundred and. 20-plus years of, of Test cricket. And there have been a couple since. But you've got Riddham and Saha against Bangladesh and Niroshan and against South Africa. So six times in total in Test cricket history that both openers have been stumped. And what's really interesting is the pairs of spinners who've done it. So some prestigious pairs. Warren and McGill did it. Ramadin and Valentine did it. Ashwin and Harbhajan Singh did it. Rangana Herath and Dilruan Pereira did it. There were one not not quite on the same level there, but still, hair arts in there, and then in 1882, in a match that started in 1881, you'll like that, Adam, started on New Year's Eve and mm-hmm. then spilled over into the the next year. The bowlers were Billy Cooper, not the trumpeter, but William Cooper, the leg break bowler, and Joey Palmer and his five daughters who got the <laughs> other one. So. The only there's only ever been one bowler to get both the stumping. So there have been six lots of two stumpings, both open stumped, but only one bowler's got both of them out. Yep. And that was in 1896, the great Australian all-rounder, Harry Trott, who, in final word form, knocked over WG Grace and the inexhaustible AE stutter, <laughs> both stumped to start off a test match. <laughs> How
0: about that? Oh, that's, that's fabulous. I mean, you can... Old AE was just keen to just keep moving from the night before, still dancing, still tiptoeing right. around. Um, and, and, and also, just a little thing
1: I noted from tuning into our electoral talk earlier about uh, fairness in society, and, and that's something that comes up in Tim Weekmore's book as well. Here's the how do you like this condescending line from the uh, the the wisdom obituary for for Harry Trott? By sheer force of character, he overcame the disadvantages involved in lack of education and won the warm regard of men with whom, apart from the comradeship of the cricket field, he had nothing in common. Ah, <laughs> oh, like odious skunks! They're like, oh, look, he was a poor one. He spoke with a funny voice, but he was good at cricket. So even proper, real gentlemen humans. Condescended to like him a bit. <laughs> Fuck off, you posh pricks!
0: More story time on the weekend show. Hey, Jeff, time for us to take a break. Uh, when we return, we'll be having a conversation with Stefan Samanski and Tim Wigmore about their book, Cricketomics. This
3: is Jeremy Coney, and I'm on the final word.
0: Hey guys, we haven't said this in a few weeks. Buy a cricket bat, make it Woodstock. Woodstock yeah. cricket. .co.uk, T-F-W-20, bung it in, 20% off, best bet in England, probably the best bet in the world, why wouldn't you? If you
1: want a wood stick, make it a wood stock. That's what I say in the slogan that I just made up. Is it good? Not necessarily. Have people been paid for worse? Probably, I mean almost certainly. Look, it's no call, call, carpet, call the experts in the trade, but Woodstock Look, there was a competition about which cricket bats are the best ones. A blind test. No one knew what the bats were. Woodstock won number one and number two. They've they've got the two best bats in the world. Uh, They're much more affordable than most other cricket companies as well. And you add 20% off from that because you're friends with us.
0: And call Lubemobile on 13, 13, 32. No, actually, call Woodstock Cricket. That's 13, 13, 32. 32. Woodstockcricket.co.uk, TFW20, buy yourself a bat, spoil yourself. I'm going to use one at Lord's when I play there on the 15th of June. I'll tell Mm. you more about that on Storytime, eh? Until then.
1: Uh, Now I'm just thinking about Lubemobile. It just sounds like something that a really gross dude would call his (laughs) car, you know, welcome to the Lubemobile. Anyway,
0: go buy a cricket bat. Stop thinking about that. This is The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. In my hand, I have a copy of Cricketomics, The Anatomy of Modern Cricket, written by Stefan Szymanski and Tim Wigmore, who we've got on the line. Uh, good afternoon to you both.
3: Good afternoon. Hi. Hi. Good to be with you.
0: Hi, guys. Good to be back. Uh, Stefan, let's start with you. You're the uh, illustrious, award-winning author of Sockonomics. I've seen your name before. How did you transition from writing about the economics of football, soccer, to cricket. As simple as that. Are you a cricket fan as well, or was this just you saw a sport that was crying out for a book like this?
3: Yeah, no, I've I've always watched cricket. It was, uh, I was terrible at school at every sport, but this was the one I would really have loved to have been good at. I wasn't, I can't bat, bowl or field, but... um, (laughs) I, I, I was always followed the sport and very glad to be able to write something about it because there's very little written about it by academics. It's, it's actually kind of under-researched topic. and But to write this kind of book you need the right journalist who can Talk about the what's really going on in the game, and that's when teaming up with Tim was the, really the, the 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 thing that made this happen. Without that, it
0: just wouldn't have been possible. I know Tim Wigmore pretty well, so does Jeff, uh, and I'm tipping he would have been uh, bombarding you with WhatsApps and emails saying, "Hey, Stefan, let's write a book together." Is it something like that?
3: Well, we we actually had a little dispute, and I I'm getting so old now. Um, I think my memory is failing. I, we have both claimed at various points that we were the ones who came up with the idea, but since <laughs> Tim's a lot younger, I'll I'll concede to him. Since who knows, I don't know. I don't know what it did. Yesterday. So, so,
2: um, yeah, the awesome. origin story's got lost somewhere along the way, which is. I guess just like a lot of cricket history, so it's kind of fitting, right? Tim, cricket is a sport
1: that's very—it's—it's it's rich with mythology in terms of uh, the kind of mythology around you know people making up reasons for things, truisms. Oh, this is happening because of X, Y, and Z. Uh, England are bad at batting because they play too much cricket in April or whatever it is. Um, did for you was this was this like a, an exciting opportunity for? And I know the kind of things that excite you—they are these sort of questions questions um to, to to get in there and prove or disprove things with by by applying
2: hard data
1: to the, the accepted truths.
2: So I think often like uh something happens and then we kind of work yeah. backwards and we it's like, oh it happened because of this. And actually if you look often you end up with completely contradictory reasons. Um, you know, over a few year period, you do it's very easy to just blame it on the latest fad or whatever. Um, you know, say R oh, Whatever, is um T twenty, has it destroyed batting techniques in, in test cricket? And then and then you'll get a guy like Ben Stokes, a heading lane of like, oh T twenty made mm-hmm. him be able to do this this innings. And and either that kind of classic contradictory reasoning. So actually, yeah, to, to kind of you're right to actually be able to take a step back and to kind of work through what's actually happening and why. Um and obviously this is something I couldn't have done without Stefan and uh his book with Cyber Cooper. So economics is obviously fantastic and sort of really quite a, sort of a seminal book in in probably sports writing and so to be able to team up with him was was great and hopefully apply some of those techniques to, to cricket and yeah as you said try and look a little bit beyond the kind of fables and the the myths and to work out what's what's actually what's actually going on um, starting with the the very age-old question of uh, basically why, why uh, batsmen and bowlers have, have different backgrounds generally.
0: Yeah, and I mean, this isn't your first radio in this space either, Tim, from Cricket 2.0 that was, uh, well, multi-award winning uh, book with Freddie Wild a couple of years ago. And that also had that almost, I suppose, uh, Gladwellian interest in answering questions that seem like, as Jeff put it, like where where the where the accepted wisdom hasn't been challenged, I suppose, and where you lead off is interesting about the very idea of private schools and state schools and batters versus bowlers and who does what and and why there are these misconceptions, but but some uh, of these uh, myths actually are borne out by the data. Can, can you explain a bit about that and, and why you led off with that topic?
2: Yeah, it well, was actually it's probably like sometimes a bit of this you kind of you get lucky or maybe you make your own luck but maybe you just do get lucky and this is probably a chapter that's more kind of relevant in the aftermath of the ashes and you know it's provoked one of those big kind of english english cricket loves its kind of angst ridden kind of moments of you know where's it all gone wrong and you know the ashes was a classic where actually we for the probably for the first time really actually looking at you know maybe the player pool is, is too small um in terms of you know the backgrounds of players. Um, and so that's made the, the sort of first chance more relevant. So yeah, it's basically looking at so the, the traditional the traditional idea of of kind of bats and bowlers, you know, to go all the way back is that, you know, you, Adam, you would you would own your your land and you would employ Jeff and other labourers to, to bowl at you because bowling is, is tough and it's yeah, it, it's physically tough. It's not as glamorous as, as hitting as hitting the ball. You don't get that kind of easy release. It's just it's just a more difficult, more arduous thing. And so you had the idea that the then gentlemen who were the amateurs would would tend to be batsmen, uh, and often cricket, often the captains as well, and then the professionals would be would be the bowlers. You know, stereotypically from the from the mines. That's, that's obviously a bit exaggerated, but that, there's also something in that. Anyway, you go, you trace this all the way, and then even today you still have. Um, the the ring are significantly more likely to come from private schools than bowlers. So this traditional idea somehow still still seems to hold hold true today. And actually trying to unpick why that that is is very interesting. And we, we basically think that if you think of nature and nurture, generally, uh, nurture is a little bit more important on the the batting side. I e you know, good 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 coaching. But you to be able to to net a lot, having people to to bowl at you. Practice and and nature, i.e., you know, your kind of raw raw talent is a little bit more important on the bowling side, which seems to go some way to explain this disparity be- between batting and bowling, and why yeah, why the backgrounds are still probably not that you know, kind of almost as a someone in nineteenth century would have, if you if you had to problem them into cricket now, that would probably be one of the things that surprised them the least, seeing how this traditional divide is broadly still still true, and there's lots of exception, but broadly is still true.
1: One of the things that interested me, Stefan, was the way that the the human element of things can be particularly important in amongst the data and the analysis. So... Like in with what Tim's talking about there, you do a lot of quantifying about the kind of facilities that kids get access to at private schools, um, the the numbers in terms of the, the proportion of batting players and the and the kind of the scores they can make, the the fact they play on better batting pitches and so on. But then there's there are the unquantifiable things like. Uh, a kid who's learning batting from a batting coach at a private school has better networking opportunities because that coach is going to be connected. That coach is probably an ex-county pro. That coach has contacts. And through that, a student with that privileged start is able to access the world of county cricket much more easily. It's it's much less far away. It's much more approachable. You can't put any sort of numbers on things like that, but those, those illustrative human moments tell a lot. No,
3: I, I think that's absolutely right. And I mean, one of the points about this is it shows just how, as Tim was saying, how how little Britain has changed in 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 two hundred years, and how these class sort of based systems still persist. But I, one of the things that I found most interesting was the way in which these things. If you're not careful, you can miss this stuff. So yes, batting in a, in a in an English school between the ages of thirteen and eighteen is a really big advantage. But you'd think that being a bowler at between the ages of 16 and 18 in one of these schools might be a big advantage, but it doesn't seem to show up. But then if you look at the England under-19 cricket team, by the time they get to that point of selection… The England selectors seem to be able to select almost all the players who go on to be really successful Tests and, and one-day internationals. So it, it's also striking that, I, and I think there's more work to do on this, that these these moments of development are really quite, quite sudden and sharp. And so I, I think there's more to say. And, and that's, again, where human intervention makes a difference. If everything depends on just a small difference here or there, then there's always scope for humans to step in and and make a real difference so i think there's more research but i think it's also kind of interesting to think about how this affects the way coaching practice works and interesting with with bowlers even though at england
0: under 19 level is the case study you provide but it's the batters you could probably pick when they're 14 because they're being they are technicians so to speak they're, they're being given these opportunities whereas with bowlers it's more that that nature point that Tim makes where they have their growth spurt a little bit later they end up six foot four and can bowl as quickly as they can bowl and and that ends up being a bigger input for selection than accuracy it's your what your natural gifts are what's your
2: what's your ceiling look like with pace and something else is, is sort of interesting that's happening here is that for the private schools themselves, these players, players are basically, they are marketing investments. And by that, I mean, if you give a sports scholarship to Joe Root, then you can say forever, we made Joe Root. The, the, the interesting question is, it's obviously very hard to disentangle. How much did, did a school make Joe Joe Root? Worse. He was 15. So actually, we classify him as, so our, our data, we classify him as, as state educator. So we're saying, where did you spend the majority of your secondary education? Because clearly, if at sixteen you can predict pretty well, and therefore it's kind of a marketing thing to give someone a scholarship and say we made them. So what's interesting is that even getting on at thirteen or going to, or even earlier, that still is is a big a big advantage. But from a point of view, I mean, these private schools they are they not. They do have charitable status, but they are basic businesses. And, and in terms of as an investment, actually, you would always give, it's a safer investment always to give, it, to give a scholarship to a batsman than a bowler because the batsman is less likely to break down and be injured and it's easy to predict at an earlier age. So something is happening kind of earlier in the system, which, yeah, so there's lots of, lots of things going on. It's hard to disentangle. And obviously, yeah, the schools the school help to make the players, but they also try and claim credit sometimes more than, than they, they deserve as well because, yeah, they want to promote themselves as well.
1: In terms of the topics you two cover in the book, it's much more broad than looking at the, the sort of topics we've covered so far there are lots of different things there's there's Steve Waugh's test team and and the way that their scoring rates changed test cricket there's how New Zealand managed to become as competitive as they are there's there's Sri Lanka's competitiveness in the 90s there's data a lot of data about domestic competitions and and the the balance they have with international matches and the way that boards arrange them like you've you've gone through all these different subjects in in the whole sport how did you come up with what you wanted to focus on was it was it like a word cloud kind of idea did you like sit there and brainstorm and throw darts at balloons or like were these pet topics that that you know each of you had a few things that you really wanted to do x y and z
3: yeah I think I so I I think it was a bit of both so I think there were some things that were obvious that you would obviously want to talk about so the impact of T20 on test cricket and, and so forth. I mean, we started off, I think, thinking, oh, well, it must have been the case that um, scoring rates went up in test cricket after the adoption of the IPL, so uh, after adoption of T20. So we thought we just went through the data and looking, expecting, yeah, we'll see that. And then, bang, no, actually, that's not what happened. It's uh, the, the strike rates go up well before T20 starts. And so sometimes chapters came out of both sort of searching for something that's obvious and then not finding it. And then others, I think, were more, yeah, I mean, so there were there were pet peeves. So, I mean, Tim's had already done a lot of work on concussion and so that was something that got him interested in that. And, you know, I, I'm obviously interested in statistics. So I, there had to be a chapter on Douglas Lewis I mean, that, that couldn't not happen. Right? In, in terms
0: of unexpected chapters or unexpected conclusions, Tim, I think you and I thrash this out. I, mean, I didn't know you were working on this project especially, but you – put to me a couple of cricketers and you wanted to know their scholastic background in Australia and and my theories on private public or government private uh, education in Australia and and how the test teams comprised and thought of. When you go through it, you present a fairly compelling case that everything that I thought is kind of wrong. Do you want to elaborate on that uh, when it comes to the schooling backgrounds of Australian cricketers?
2: Well, like I said, that Australia is, is probably a more egalitarian country than Britain, but it's not as much more egalitarian as it, it likes to present. And I think this, this is one reason why th- this this probably annoys a lot of Aussies. And there was an amazing headline when Ed, Ed Cowan, when he, he scored a, a test century saying, you know, Cowan smashes through the, the private school barrier, suggesting that actually going to an elite school is actually a disadvantage um, for him and there are all these theories about this in terms of, you know, New South Wales, kids at, at private schools not being able to play in club cricket and stuff, all, you know, very compelling theories I like we talked about at the start. And then we, anyway, we, we got into the data and clearly there's some differences, you know, more, far more people go to private schools in Australia than England. There's also sort of different categories of private schools. There's sort of more, most more traditional British ones. And there's kind of Catholic, Catholic schools, which often the fees are pretty mo- modest um, often, but we're looking at it, and and there's been a shift over time where private schools did used to be underrepresented in terms of the amount of Australian cricketers they produce. Now they produce a clearly disproportionate number, and if you dig a bit more into it, it actually is it's often the very elite schools. Pat Cummins and Cameron Green are two players who went to those who are actually who, are, who are, are producing a lot of the players. So it's no, it's not as extreme as England. We're not saying that for a moment, but it's it's less different to England than I think a lot of Australians would, would think. Um, and yeah, I think the, the numbers, were, we were very careful, about, well, particularly careful in this chapter, almost because we knew it was kind of going against the, the grain. But yeah, I think we'd we've, we've be able to find something that is a shift, a shift over time. And yeah, the, the private schools are a huge, huge factory of talent in England. And they're also a very significant producer of, of talent in, in Australia.
1: Well, the, the raw numbers that you were coming up with were that the numbers are basically the same um, in terms of percentages of you know players from from private school backgrounds who play for the national teams. So.
2: But it, yeah, but it's less disproportionate in Australia because more people in Australia go go to private schools. But it still is right. disproportionate in Australia. But it's
0: evolved too, though, right, Tim? So the the, the issue. Yeah. I mean, issue. That's probably the wrong descriptor. But the, how pronounced this is it hasn't. It's a pretty modern phenomenon, isn't it? Like you go back. You went back through the years and you did the graphs on this and. It's not as though 30 years ago, loads of Australian test cricketers went to fee-paying schools. It's a more modern thing than that.
3: But bear in mind also that 30 years ago, many fewer Australians went to private schools as well. So there's been a shift there. And that's one thing that's different between the UK and and Australia is that there have been very big shifts in the education system in in Australia. And actually, in the UK, in terms of it's been about 8% of kids go to private schools for the last... Well, since the Second World War, more or less, a bit, almost hundred years now. So that's that's one difference. And and the and the, the share of, of privately educated kids in the Australian team has more or less followed that um that trend. I mean the other thing to say is that one thing that came out in in writing the book, because we started doing this, we started to say, well, now we need to look at Sri Lankan schools, and then we uh, will we'll be able to look at Indian schools, now we've we'll got to look at uh, Barbadian schools. And one thing that comes out is, you know, the, the British style of education, which handed out to, to the former colonists, is actually made a huge difference. And, I mean, I think, again, it's something that more work needs to be done on. I think it's just so, it's been... That whole nature of this, the, the, the way in which you're schooled has had such a, a big impact on the playing of cricket. And, and again, maybe that's an obvious point in retrospect, but it's something that mm. comes out when you start to dig into the data and see just how many of these players come from schools uh, built on the British model is, is, is quite remarkable. And then that ties into the kind of
1: analysis that you do on India in terms of the uh, well, you're talking about an Australian mythology of all um, uh, of all players coming from state schools, but then in India, it's a mythology of the countryside and the the sort of rural roots of cricket when, in fact, the, the analysis that you're doing paints it as an almost exclusively urban game and the bigger the city, the more influence it has.
3: Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about cricket is that everywhere it has a bit of a rural myth tied to it. And As in most myths, there's there's usually something to it. There's, there's, I mean, so in England and and Australia and the West Indies, you could find examples of these kind of rural clubs um, that have, uh, you know, that play a a disproportionate role in people's minds and gives you this idea. But in, in India, there's almost no history of rural cricket whatever. And it's a remarkably urban sport. And one thing I would argue as an economist is that pretty much all sport is urban, really, all professional sport is urban. And the reason it's urban is because to play sport you need you need professional sport, two things. You need opponents. And you need fans. And cities are where you're going to find opponents and fans that are in close enough proximity to make it worthwhile. And so that's why sport is generally urban. But in, in India, it's incredibly pronounced. And and really, but the, the sort of question we try to sort of set ourselves in, in that chapter is to try is to try to decide whether in the future it's going to where where will India tell India's talent come from? Will they finally tap in? Their rural talent, or will they continue, or, or will they actually start to develop develop more talent from the urban slums, which which are which are absolutely vast, and uh, um, you can see a case for both. But I think it does represent India is still remaining one of the most rural countries in the world. There's a big issue of tapping into their talent and
2: the shift in Indian talent pool. What? Well, well, India has opened up its talent pool, but this has not been. There's a few I'm not sure Ranjan is one. This has generally not been. You know, to kids from villages, it's been to kids from, in India terms, small cities, to, you know, actually cities often of several million people. Um, You know, Ranchi, MS Stoney's term, it's, it's, you know, city of a million people and stuff. So, what, what has changed and what I argue is a big reason for India's rise is India used to basically get almost all its test players from, the the big six states and now that has that that share has decreased so it it seems to be it's getting more it's still getting almost all its players from cities but the share of cities has become a bit more even so it has opened up its talent pool but as, as Stefan said if you're a kid from a virgin in India it's still phenomenally phenomenally difficult to to get anywhere near the, the test team. Yeah, it's interesting that you talk about the myth that
0: when, when, in, when India won in Australia last year with a, with a third 11, it was so Amazing, much yeah. devoted to, oh, well, they've, they've scoured every corner of India. Um, Harsha Bogla, a colleague and friend of ours, has, has advanced this view that if you are willing to go out and do the hard work, you can find players from anywhere and you can have a deeper talent pool. Maybe it's generation one of that. And that'll expand, and, and that brings me to, I suppose, the the interesting chapter you have on um, on city versus city against country versus country, and you know, obviously, there's the the IPL that's done the former, and when Australia had their revolution, World Series cricket. They they went with state against state, mate against mate, and, you know, as it were, and they they stuck with the fairly formulaic idea of what cricket rivalry would be. Come on, Aussie, come on, as you use off the top as your intro to that chapter. Maybe Kerry Packer would have been better served saying, hang on a second, let's play off Melbourne against Sydney and try and open up those markets and and do as the IPL kind of has done a generation later.
2: Yeah, I think that's really – there doesn't seem to be – we talked to Gideon Hay, who's written the definitive of World Series cricket, and he – he said that there was no evidence that it was very seriously contemplated at all but that's a kind of really interesting counterfactual if, if Packer had actually torn up said international cricket doesn't particularly work we're going to do something completely different and yeah have Melbourne be Sydney they'd have a couple of teams in Melbourne you know Adelaide and so on Brisbane and you put Joel Garner playing for, for Brisbane and you have Michael Holding playing for Sydney and stuff and, and that Yeah, a fascinating kind of counterfactual if if he'd attempted that, but he didn't. He basically just tries to replicate the structures of international cricket. And it it takes... Of course, 1996 is another starting doors moment when Lalit Modi, he tries to introduce the IPL, but for 50 over cricket and that plan gets rejected. So that plan is for eight cities, very much like the, what the IPL is to play 50 over cricket and, and that doesn't happen and then we, it, it takes another 12 years until we get the real IPL. So there's a few moments along the way and and clearly with international cricket, the number of, of kind of elite Countries has always been been fairly small. And for a, you know, for the bigger markets, if you can find a way to monetize City V city, it's going to be way more lucrative because you can play 60 IPL games in, in a month, and India can only play what sort of half on 50-15 days if they had a, a packed month. So um, but basically the shift which we're seeing, I think, is, is clearly borne out in the data is if you think of football as, as a model, which is you have international tournaments, which are huge and actually probably the, the biggest single events in the sport, but the kind of beating heart of the sport, the day-to-day interest is centered around the club game. And then you have what cricket has been traditionally, which is really miles away from that, international cricket being everything. Cricket is on a journey to be to being more towards football, whether it ends up at the football level, not necessarily, but um, international cricket is becoming a smaller part of the ecosystem, which is obviously the IPL's part of that. It's also why The 100 was created, really. The ECB... They said basically they were worried about international cricket is not a regular l- lucrative source of cash because we don't have India or Australia coming. We- we're not going to be earning a huge amount. So the idea was you can have uh, a tournament where you make money every year reliably, no matter who who is coming, and um, and that's a kind of a-, a shift underway. So so club cricket is becoming clearly becoming a an ever more important part part of the game. You
1: mentioned Duckworth, Lewis, Steffen, and. and- I thought that was the most impressive part of the book for me is that you actually made me understand Duckworth Lewis, <laughs> which I had never i've never understood. not that I could sit down and do the calculation <laughs> mid game but but I understand the principle of what it is trying to achieve and how it does it and and what really stood out was that you you pointed out that almost nobody who follows or watches the game understands how it works, but that we don't actually care because it feels right, like because the results that it comes up with feel intuitive to the average cricket watcher. You know, it it, it seems to hit the right balance however it does it. And it seems like, I mean, that must be the most, the most uh, rewarding sort of feeling as a mathematician to to come up with a model with a, with a predictive model or or an adaptive model like that that consistently gets the intuitively right result from a human side as well as a technical side.
3: Absolutely, I, and I mean, it, it is a remarkable invention, and um, it, it's quite staggering that, that as you say, I mean, the vast majority of people don't understand it, but almost nobody argues with it, and if you think about that i mean the things that people did understand in the past they caused immense arguments when it was uh, average run rate or you know uh, the, or the all the various other mechanisms that have been been created just as a statistician there is there i cannot think of any other sport where a statistical rule is written into into the game it's actually it's not it's not a strategy it's not analytics it's not moneyball it's how you play this game and that i think that's just an, an amazing sport Tim, uh, I can I can
0: see your fingerprints all over the New Zealand chapter, um, <laughs> with reference to how they've been able to do more with less by any objective measure. You sort of found I think about eight reasons why, which is going to be hard to summarise in one answer. But it, it, if I was to conclude what I read from it, it's that they've accepted their limitations and played within their limitations and and played to their strengths. And, and can you elaborate a bit on how they've done that and why, therefore, they are so far. Uh, I guess by proportion ahead of the rest of the pack relative to other countries with much bigger populations.
2: Uh, so, as you guys regularly talk about on this podcast, most cricket administration is pretty terrible. So it's a very lo- low bar. But New Zealand's cricket administration is actually very, very good. Um, it's actually claimed as amongst the best in any sport in the world. So it's got basically they got their old board to outvote itself, replacing a regional model with actually having the best people on the board. So that's that's a kind of starting point. So actually making decisions for the, the right the right reasons. Um, and in terms of specifically what they've done, you know, a big part of it was they used to play their domestic cricket on, I think, 25 or so grounds a year. So you'd be playing at kind of local club grounds and it was pretty, the facilities were substandard. And so in 2005, they introduced a warrant for fitness, basically with minimum standards of, of the grounds. And kind of linked to that, they sorted out their pitches. So pitches in New Zealand went from amongst the the worst for, for batsmen to actually they've been since 2010, domestic cricket, they've been the best for, for batting in, in the world. Um, and I think you... Basically, so they're more similar to the um, pictures you get in, in test cricket. They, unlike many countries, this is probably linked to the governance. They haven't burned money on their own T20 leagues. We, we've seen South Africa and various other countries losing huge amounts of money on T20 leagues, trying to kind of build their own IPL, which is pie in the sky. Um, New Zealand haven't done that. They've also avoided what West Indies used to have, which was their kind of adversarial attitude towards T20 leagues, you know, like the IPL, um, costing them players. So they've avoided all that which has been very smart. They've actually genuinely got a system which prioritises the international team above domestic cricket, probably English cricket is an example where this Generally, is not is not the case. So, we talked with Mike Hesson. he there were some nice examples like with BJ Watling. So, BJ Watling was actually opening in domestic cricket, and he called up his his coach and was like, "We want BJ Watling to be our new wicketkeeper. Can you can you move him down to five and make him the keeper?" and 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 he, and the coach did that, no problem. Same with Tom Latham for the World Cup. Uh, he was opening domestic cricket. They wanted him to bat at five and keep, and um, again, no, no problem. So, the whole system is kind of geared towards the national team first. And a good example of that was. Uh, 2008, they actually had to they reduced their domestic schedule by a couple of rounds in order to fund more more 18 cricket, which is obviously crucial um, as a kind of as a bridge to the international game. So that the whole the whole system really is geared geared towards what's best for the international game, and they found a way to basically kind of not have factions getting in the way of good of good decision making. Clearly, New Zealand has a lot of advantages. It's, it's pretty rich, and I think culture there kind of works pretty easy, but I think crucially they've been able to use their small size to their to their advantage so rather than trying to kind of ape Australia or whatever it's all geared towards them and what they're doing and in many ways they've been able to to learn from the best example of any small country uh exciting a sport really which is the All Blacks so it's kind of the perfect template they've had on their front door and 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 the kind of the model of domestic teams to international teams is very similar to what it is with the uh, Super Rugby and the All Blacks.
0: Yeah, very interesting. Look, there, there is so much here. I mean, there are there are six sections, there are twenty chapters. So we're not going to be able to touch on all of it. But I did, Stefan, before we go, wanted to uh, talk about the twenty eighteen uh, series when India visited. England. Now, you've you've gone on all sorts of different tangents in this book, and I've I've loved it. Um, but I, I didn't really consider weather as one that would rear up, and, and so it does towards the end. Uh, talk us through your theory about the 2018 series, which was an absolute belter, and how the weather might have been why India didn't end up taking home more success. They only won one test match. No, well, I mean it's a
3: it's a it, it, I mean it's a standing joke in cricket that the weather matters, right? And and we we know. And certainly for the English, you know, sitting in a playing cricket in 30 degrees is immensely demanding, whereas for tourists having to play in Durham at 10 degrees is also a pretty horrendous prospect. So the, the issue is, can you quantify this? And, and that's a problem. But in fact, test cricket is a wonderful test. Benefit. And it's not a, there, there are very few other sports where you could conduct a similar test. And, and the reason being is that you're playing the same game over several days. So in some sense, everything is the same on each day, as far as the teams are concerned, apart from the weather now, what we did was we actually, there's, uh, you can get, you can download weather daily weather data from these uh, US websites that are open source. And we got that for all the test cities uh, for each day of the test matches going back to the 1930s. And then tried to see whether the difference in temperature between your home country for the visiting team and the actual temperature made a significant difference. And it turned out that it did. If the temperature difference was large enough between two countries with very different climates, then it would make a significant difference if it was significantly warmer or significantly colder. So for example, for England and India, this makes a big difference because our climates are very different. But for Australia and South Africa, doesn't make a big difference because the climates are actually similar enough that there's no real temperature of oxygen. So, we found that specifically 2018, when the weather was pretty rubbish in England, this probably had a significant impact on the performance of the Indian team.
2: Well, the, the funny thing, Adam, you'll, you'll remember about that summer, it was baking hot in June and July, yes. absolutely heat baking, ways. absolutely. Heat. And then, as soon as the test series starts, the clouds come in and it gets about 15 degrees cooler. So, the kind of counterfactual is if this series had been in. June and July, rather rather than August. Given that I think it one margin was thirty one runs, the other was sixty three. So two very tight games, yep. and we'll be looking at. We're at Cody's legacy in a very, very different way.
0: <laughs> I'm sure Indian fans who read this book will love hearing it put that way. Uh, there are chapters here around efficiency, around a day at the cricket, the Barmy Army, Afghanistan, Germany, the works. There's so much good work in here. I can't recommend it enough. Uh, Stefan and Tim, congratulations on completing Crickonomics. We'll, we will have uh, a link in the show notes to where you can buy it. I assume Amazon's the best bet at this stage based on talking to your publisher. Would that be right?
2: That sounds fair. That Yeah, fair. I should say for Aussies, it's only on Australia in August.
0: Well, but it might yeah. only be around in August, but we'll talk but about it. But They can yeah. order it now. They can order it now. Exactly, you can pre-order it. Spot on. Uh, uh, Stefan at Tim Wigmore, congratulations on, on on the piece of work that is Crickonomics and looking forward to seeing the response over the next few weeks. Oh,
3: thanks for having us on, guys. Cheers, guys. Thanks a lot. I'm Glenn Maxwell.
1: Make sure you listen to The Final Word with Adam Coles and Jeff Lemon.
0: Final word, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon. Thanks again to Stefan and Tim for coming on and having a chat. Uh, as I said off the top, that is the quintessential uh, piece of work from Wiggy. It's like all of his good ideas have been uh, have been brought into, well, not only the first book, Cricket 2.0, but his. Uh, this isn't the sequel. It's very different in the way that it comes at these problems, but it's of the same family, at the very least, economics So I was very happy to uh, receive it in the post and, yes, have them on the show to chat about it.
1: <laughs> it was it was spot on the kind of topic that like he would bail you up in a lift and he'd be like have you ever thought about the fact that, that is, there, was, there was talk about players coming from the country in India but but not actually come from the country. Not from the country, they come from from medium sized cities. They're, they're small cities, but they're actually actually quite quite big cities comparatively. And you'd be like, Okay let's do this. Yeah,
0: sure. Absolutely. And then
1: that's yep. a chapter. Yep. Um yeah. Well, look, one of the nice things about doing a podcast is you basically just hang out and have a chat and often times here you, you know you get to chat with some interesting people about things they know about so happy days
0: yes it is uh it's as we said at the top it's our show and we'll uh cry if we want to uh That is it for us for another week. Uh, If you like what we do, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash the final word. Uh, By going there and submitting a Nerd Pledge, you can be part of the fun we have on the weekend show, which will be coming up on Saturday, episode 91, I think it is, of Nerd Pledge, Uh, all of the episodes at finalwordcricket.com. Thank you to our production team at Bad Producer Production, our editor, Dave Collins, who looks after us so splendidly. And thank you to Tim and Stefan for being guests on the show, woodstockcricket.com co.uk tfw20 if you want to buy yourself a cricket bat. All right, that's it from us. Uh, we'll talk to you on the weekend. Bye. I had to go about it, write it out.